So Dan, 23rd of December, is Leo excited for his first Christmas? Well, he seems pretty excited. I don't, I'm not sure he knows too much about it right now. But yeah, he does seem sort of pretty excited about it. Nice. And what kind of tree have you got? Are you garish, bright lights, kitty Christmas or? Well, we're away for Christmas this year. So really looking forward to sort of just putting my feet up, having some nice food and entering into that period of time where you basically not quite sure what time of day it is, not quite sure whether it's lunch or dinner, but you're just basically eating nice food and, and having a few drinks. Well, that sounds lovely, Dan. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So one big theme in the news this year, other than COVID, of course, has been a focus on climate issues, whether that's government policy, whether that's company disclosures, or whether that's investors. The idea of climate has really been at the forefront of a lot of discussions. So joining us today for a discussion of that, delighted to welcome back Claire Jones, Head of Responsible Investment at LCP. Claire, welcome back. Thank you. We're delighted to be back. So Claire, I think you introduced yourself on our previous episode when you joined us. And the other question that Dan always likes to ask our guests at the start is, what one thing we should know about you that doesn't appear on your LinkedIn? And I think you were telling us about the choir that you sing with. Now, of course, when we first recorded with you, that was back almost a year ago and in person. How's that been going over, over COVID? Have you still been able to meet on a virtual basis and practice? We have still been meeting. We transferred to Zoom very quickly at the end of March, and we've been singing along in our homes since then. And we even managed five rehearsals in October time where we had a, what we call an integrated rehearsal, where we had some people socially distanced in a local village hall and some sort of remaining on Zoom because they were a bit nervous about the close contact. But no, we're really thrilled to be able to have kept up our singing. And in fact, we produced a video over the summer where we recorded individual audio tracks of each singing a song and mimed the video round Winchester, creating a sort of fabulous piece, which perhaps we could link in the show notes. Absolutely. Fantastic. Yeah, that sounds lovely. Yeah, that's, that's online, is it? It's on YouTube or something? It is, yes. I was lovely. going to ask if you had any shows coming up, but that's a really good way of working around that. Yes, it was our entry for a competition, which would have obviously been a live competition, but so we had an online festival instead. Nice. I suppose you miss out on all the Christmas carols singing and stuff that would normally be part of that, do you? Yeah, so we were singing along last night on Zoom to our Christmas carols, so haven't missed out entirely. Good to know, good to know. Well, Claire, there's obviously been a huge amount going on this year, as I've been saying, in terms of regulation, government policy. But I suppose a really big thing question for us is how investors are looking at a lot of these issues around climate. So I'll just kick off the discussion. I mean, how would you sort of summarise some of the key milestones this year and some of the key things that we're looking at with investors? Well, I guess I'd probably start with the big policy picture, actually, because that's what's shaping the landscape for investors. Of course, this was going to be the big year where we had the COP26 talks in Glasgow. They were due to take place in November. And although they've been postponed a year, we've still seen a lot of action on climate change, a lot of big policy announcements, particularly over the last few months. The particular theme of the net zero commitments, we've had recently sort of Japan, South Korea committing to net zero by 2050. Joe Biden as well in the US and China committing to net zero by 2060. So some really important long-term commitments there, which is very important from an investment perspective in terms of setting the direction of travel and 
helping investors to reassess the probabilities of meeting the Paris Agreement targets. I guess 2050 and 2060 always sound to me like a very long way away. Do you think, I mean, and of course, I should say countries making big commitments like that is clearly a positive step. But do you think it's enough or do we need to be aiming for dates that are earlier than that? Is this one step of many or is this kind of the goal, if you like? The headline commitments are important, but it's the shorter term targets that matter at the moment. We're getting a lot of headline grabbing announcements, but relatively little follow through in terms of the policy measures to actually implement the targets, whether that's government commitments or indeed sort of company commitments. And I think we need to start to have much more focus on the short term actions that are being taken commensurate with the long term targets. You mentioned just now Joe Biden's commitment, which I think was very well received generally. And I guess I'm interested in the power that that commitment has. So of course, there's the shorter term actions that Biden can influence within the US itself. And clearly, that's a huge economy. But the fact that the US as a huge economy has made that sort of commitment, what sort of more far reaching implications do you think that has? Does it encourage many other countries to make similar pledges? I think it does help other countries to make those sort of pledges, because there is a danger that otherwise countries will say, well, we're such a small emitter in comparison with the US, that if the US isn't acting, our own contribution towards the challenge is not going to make a big enough difference. And of course, it creates a much more supportive policy environment for investors, for companies operating globally. If you've got one of the largest economic players setting a clear strategy towards net zero. Is part of the point, you think, of 2050 being quite far away? Do you think it actually helps in a way because you can sort of come out with an aspirational goal without having to have thought it through to the nth degree, to every little level, which you can then reverse into it. Whereas if a date was a bit closer, you might have had to have all that figured out. I think that's exactly right. And I've seen it recently with a number of investment managers making some really noteworthy commitments to, for example, transition their whole assets under management to net zero by 2050, but very little detail around how they're going to do that. And if they were being held to shorter term timeframes, I don't think we would see such a level of ambition. And there's a tension there because on the one hand, these high level commitments are really promising and they should be encouraged. But as Mary was saying, we need to follow through and make sure that they do start to then work out what that means in practice and to start the implementation process. That is the tension, isn't it? I suppose it does get missed a little bit. The aspirations are great. Those ought to be encouraged and people ought to be praised for making them. But then there has to be a little bit more follow through just to keep it going. So it stays a little bit uncomfortable. It's not just like we stick out the big announcement and we're done sort of thing. It's a constant thing, isn't it? That's right. We shouldn't underestimate how hard it will be to achieve net zero by 2050. It's not something that we will manage if we put off action for a few years. We need to be taking action now particularly as well, because we are at an inflection point because of COVID-19, this does actually create an opening to start to do things differently. If we don't take that opportunity, then we won't achieve the net zero targets. You mentioned COVID-19, and I suppose I'd seen, I think it was most of the reporting I saw that was strongest was quite early on in the pandemic, where you saw things like the canals in Venice completely clear, the water was completely clear. And there were lots of, I guess, stories that were being pitched as good news stories from a global warming perspective. How would you reflect back on 2020 in terms of both the impact we've seen on climate risks, but also actions people have taken and whether we really are in a good news position or, or whether there's still too much more to be done? We certainly did see a big drop in emissions back in sort of March, April time. On the other hand, once economies started opening up again, it didn't take long for emissions to rise pretty much back to the level that they were at before. 
And whilst on the one hand, it showed that significant emission cuts can be made in a very short period of time, that's very much not the way we'd want to make emission cuts, because clearly we need to have much lower greenhouse gas emissions while having a fully functioning economy. We can't just shut down large swathes of the economy. But on the other hand, it did also open our eyes to the possibility of doing things differently. And one of the changes I think will stick will be around business travel. I'm sure we're going to do far less flying around the world for business meetings in future because we've all discovered that video conferences are a perfectly acceptable alternative and a much more efficient use of time. Yeah, I mean, there was a news item out last week that was saying Bill Gates was out there with a prediction saying that 50% of business travel and 30% of office hours will never come back, which sounds about right to me. I don't know how that sounds to you. Sounds plausible to me. And I guess it's how those economies or how those sectors continue without that source of revenue. It raises some very difficult questions about people who had been working in industries that have been hit hard, particularly the travel sector. But there's a more general point relating to climate targets around just fossil fuel intensive industries and the whole energy sector and sort of energy intensive manufacturing and so on. We've known for a while that solutions will need to be found to transition those industries to a lower carbon alternative. And it's really important that that's done in a way that protects people's jobs and livelihoods. And to the extent that the jobs that they've been doing up until now aren't needed in a low carbon economy, that they're given the necessary help and support to retrain. And we're seeing at the first glimmers, perhaps, of that in the UK at the moment, aren't we, with a bit more of a comprehensive strategy, certainly around the power sector, starting to come through from what I'm seeing. Talk of things like hydrogen, electric charging is starting to feel a bit more thought through. Do you think that's fair? Certainly in terms of industry transitions, it probably needs to be greater focus on the jobs angle and making sure that the individuals are not too adversely affected during that transition phase. But of course, there are opportunities for employment as well. We hear quite a lot about a green jobs revolution. One of the things we really need to do, particularly in the UK, is to upgrade our housing stock. And that's going to take a lot of labour to insulate our homes and so on. And there's potential there to train a whole new workforce to do that for us. Yeah, exactly. One of the things that's come out when I've talked to our energy analytics team is around just hydrogen heating. It looks like the plan could be to convert potentially a huge amount of houses in the UK to hydrogen-based heating rather than gas. And so you can see there's a jobs there for fitters of hydrogen heating who coming out of other jobs, who knows, in the travel sector perhaps. So some good news there potentially on the jobs front. But yeah, that's the key, isn't it? From an investment perspective, it's important that we are alive to those kind of possibilities particularly when I'm looking at infrastructure investments, there's often still a mindset of us continuing the status quo in terms of supporting gas pipelines and so on. And I think it's really important when you're investing in those sort of sectors to be asking questions around the likelihood of those assets being needed 10, 20, 30 years into the future and making sure that the investment manager is thinking properly about those scenarios to make sure you're investing in something that may not be required, may become a stranded asset in the not too distant future. Well, yeah, exactly. And this is a version of climate risk, isn't it? In a way, I mean, it's when you say climate risk, that first thing I think of is the risk of terrible climate outcomes down the line. But actually for investors, that's the other side of that coin, isn't it? It's actually more about obsolescence of assets and companies that could be happening potentially over a much shorter time frame. Absolutely. We talk about both transition risks and physical risks, and I would expect the transition risks probably to manifest more quickly, not least because of the policy targets, which are over a relatively short time horizon, whereas the physical impacts, although potentially very serious, will play out over a longer time period because there's quite a bit of inertia in the climate system. So that the greenhouse gas emissions we're emitting today 
will have their impact on the climate not be fully felt for you know, a decade or two. It was quite interesting actually reflecting on what you just said in relation to the conversation Dan and I had with Sonia Loud of, of Elgym a couple of weeks ago, where she was saying, very much consistent with what you're saying, Claire, but she was sort of adding the layer of almost being responsible in the way that you approach the transition. So for example, if everyone stopped investing in oil and gas companies immediately today and all of them failed, there would be a crisis in the energy sector because we're not ready for that at this stage. So we do need some companies to be able to sort of continue for long enough that that transition happens in an orderly way, which I thought was quite an interesting angle that I hadn't really thought through before. And that's one of the reasons why I emphasise the importance of stewardship. It's not just about picking good companies rather than bad companies as far as climate risk is concerned, but recognising that there's a role for many of current companies in our economy to help us through that transition. And responsible investors will be working with those companies to make sure they've got suitable transition plans. So Claire, you mentioned the sort of physical risks and when they play out. And I suppose for investors looking to understand how those different climate risks might impact them down the line, what are you seeing clients do to sort of understand those risks? Well, one of the important tools available is climate scenario analysis. And we've seen a lot of interest in that over the last couple of years, particularly in the financial sector, as a result of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures which is a set of voluntary recommendations for reporting on climate risks, but it made scenario analysis a key feature. The idea being that it's a tool to really help investors and companies to get more of a handle on climate risk, to start to quantify it in some way, but importantly, to go through that thought experiment where they envision different possible futures and start to think through things like the switch to potentially to a hydrogen gas grid and what the implications of that are. It's really interesting stuff, isn't it? Because hearing you talk about those things, your natural reaction is just to think, goodness me, how on earth can you start to put some numbers around that for what assets are going to do, what interest rates are going to do? But I suppose the point is just starting to do that is a good start, isn't it? Just some scenarios to think through and is where you've got to start. That's right. And I think you get more out of the learning process of trying to put scenarios together and thinking about whether they're realistic and what their implications are than you do from the final number that comes out at the end of the modelling. And you always have to recognise that those numbers are going to be subject to various limitations, very dependent on the assumptions you've made. So you shouldn't hang your decision on one particular set of modelling outputs, but instead use the process to make sort of climate-informed decisions. Fantastic. Reminds me of that phrase that Janet Yellen always used to say, I think, when she was getting interviewed after the Fed meeting. She used to say, I can tell you from many years of making economic predictions that any single prediction I make will be wrong. But yeah, the point being that the process of making them is useful and seeing a variety of them gives you information around sort of what might happen. What were some of the features, Claire, that are coming out in the scenarios then that you're looking at? Of course, it depends on the type of scenarios that you use. And we're seeing quite different scenario tools being used. So some of them are what we call bottom-up scenarios and are useful for, say, investment managers looking at portfolio, looking at individual companies and how they might be affected. But they're also what I'd call top-down scenarios where you're looking more at the macroeconomic impacts. And that's where we've been focusing our efforts because we're often trying to help investors who are investing to meet a particular set of liabilities. So what you need is modelling that enables you to look at both the assets and liability impacts together to look at the aggregate impact of climate change rather than the impact on sort of parts of your portfolio in isolation. That's sort of two main types of scenario we look at, ones where the Paris Agreement is met. So that's ones where you do see significant transition risks, but also still quite a sizable amount of physical risk just because of the amount of change that's already baked into the climate system. 
And then on the other hand, you have scenarios where the Paris Agreement targets are, are not met. There's probably still some transition risk because some of the technological change is going to happen anyway, regardless of policy action, but then potentially much more severe physical impacts, particularly in the second half of this century. So sort of looking at sort of modelling around that, all sorts of complexity in terms of how you go about that. But one of the most challenging things from an investment perspective is thinking not just about the economic impacts, but how that translates into financial markets. The fact that markets can price things in many years, if not decades ahead of them actually happening in the real world. So it's a mistake to say the worst of impacts of physical climate change are in the second half of the century, so we don't need to worry about it. If the market thinks it's going to happen because policy measures are not happening fast enough, then we could see financial market impacts much sooner. You can argue that maybe they've already started to see a little bit in some of the prices of some of the oil, fossil fuel type companies coming in already potentially decades ahead of these things changing. So that certainly seems to be the case, isn't it? I think that's right. And some researchers tried to isolate the effects of climate pricing in and trying to work out the extent to which markets are already reflecting these risks. I think that's something that's extremely difficult to do, but it is likely that a degree of pricing in is already taking place. You mentioned that part of the benefit of doing this sort of scenario analysis is the process that you go through and the journey effectively that you go through when you're working out what these different scenarios could look like. And I suppose that might give people a feel for their time dependency on these different scenarios playing out as well. What do you think, what do people do next? So you've done these climate scenarios, you understand that you are exposed to climate risk, as I'm sure every portfolio is, but, and you understand hopefully the extent to which you're exposed to the different scenarios. What do you then see investors or what should investors then be doing to take action when they have those sort of results and they've been through that process? Obviously, it does vary quite a bit between investors. But if I sort of talk about some of the broad actions that can be taken, I guess, first off, the analysis can be helpful to pinpoint the areas of your portfolio where you need to concentrate most, which unsurprisingly tends to be the growth assets. So then focusing in on how the risks are being managed in those parts of your portfolio. So some of the, sort of the typical recommendations around talking to your investment managers to understand their approach, challenging them to make sure that they are taking these risks seriously. Because of course, all investment managers are talking about this, but everybody's on a learning curve and some investment managers are further along it than others. So it's really trying to get some substantive answers about real differences they're making in the way that they're investing. And particularly asking some questions around the scenarios to get their views on how likely they think certain possibilities are to get them talking about it and to sort of test whether they do seem as if they know what they're talking about and can link that through to the investment decisions that they're making. So I'd say that's sort of one area of action. Just before you move on on, on that one. So we're asking investment managers questions about this sort of scenario type analysis that they've done. And at this stage, and given the task force recommendations, is it a no-go if a manager doesn't appear to have been doing some of these sorts of scenario thought processes? Do you have any sort of, I guess, red flags in that aspect, the sorts of things a manager might say if they really haven't thought about this at all? Or is that just a no? Or is there something we can do with that answer? It's more about their willingness to engage with the topic. Not every investment manager has done scenario analysis yet, and that isn't in itself a problem if they are thinking hard about the issues and starting to develop that kind of approach. I'd be more worried about an investment manager who doesn't agree that climate risks are material and isn't able to talk about the specific risks faced by the portfolio. Ultimately, trustees will need to make a judgment as to whether they're satisfied with the answers, whether the investment manager is engaging sufficiently with the topic and shows willingness to move fast enough. Because of course, if they're not satisfied, then ultimately they need to think about whether there are alternatives available. 
Thank you. And Claire, in terms of what actions investors are taking in terms of where they're allocating their assets, I mean, we've talked before a little bit about divestment versus sort of stewardship and divestment maybe not being the solution. What are investors doing in terms of actually voting with their assets on this front, on climate risk in particular, I guess? Where we're starting to see most movement is in the area of passive equities. Going back a couple of years, it was quite common for investors to say, oh, well, we invested passively, therefore there's nothing we can do. But now there's increasing recognition that actually there are alternatives because you don't need to track a market cap weighted index. And there are an increasing number of climate tilted and ESG tilted passive indices out there and some pooled funds that track them. And of course, if you're investing on a segregated basis, you have a huge amount of flexibility either to invest in one of the many climate related indices that's already been developed or indeed to develop a customized solution. And why climate, not ESG? As in ESG, of course, is the sort of broader umbrella that climate risk would sit within. But why single out climate risk for a tilted index approach? There are two different answers to that. One is around the clear financial materiality of climate risk. We are seeing a lot of emphasis on climate change over and above other ESG risks, not least because of the regulatory scrutiny. So it might be that investors are particularly looking to address climate risk, so they're focusing on climate solutions for that reason. But I think also climate risk is served by better data. There are still data quality issues, but the amount of data out there is higher for climate factors and it lends itself better to quantitative analysis. So you're more likely to have the sort of metrics that are robust enough to use as the basis of a sort of systematic investment product. Whereas broader ESG factors tend to need more sort of subjective judgment and so better suited to an actively managed approach. This is back to that big debate over the data and the data providers, isn't it? Because there are sort of three or four data providers that are emerging as the sort of main champions of this kind of data, but they don't always agree on the same metrics. I suppose you wouldn't always expect them to agree. That's often the case in investing. But reasons to think that the climate end of the data spectrum is where there's more robust results, I think, right? Yeah. It's also worth remembering that one of the reasons why the different data providers disagree is because we're often looking at headline scores where they've applied judgment to combine lots of different metrics into a headline score. And what we increasingly see is investment managers drilling down to the detail and recognising that they'd be better off picking out the individual metrics and applying their own judgment as to what's important and how they should be combined in an investment product rather than just taking the headline scores. And we're also seeing investment managers using a wider range of data providers. And that's particularly interesting on the climate front because you've got a number of specialist providers who, for example, will provide data on exposure to physical climate risks, which is much harder than the transition risks. So on the transition risk, you're focusing on data such as greenhouse gas emissions and ownership of fossil fuel reserves and so on. Whereas the physical risk, you actually need to look at the location of assets and all in case of companies, where are their main factories located, where are their supply chains located, and what are the risk exposures to flooding, hurricanes, et cetera, et cetera, at those locations. And in relation to data, I feel like I'm going to end up coming full circle here and talking more about macro. But in relation to data, I know that often there's a challenge with emerging markets, partly because of disclosure requirements in certain countries, but just generally, I guess, there being less access to some of those companies in certain countries. Is that something that you see improving generally over time? We can, I think, include emerging markets in these sort of climate tilted type approaches. So presumably the data is good enough, but presumably it's improving every day. That's a fair deduction. There is a reasonable amount of data there, but more work needs to be done. And the good news is it is being done. That There's so much focus on climate risk and particularly on disclosures that I'm confident will improve significantly over the next few years. 
I sort of tend to have relatively little patience for people that are sort of trying to almost point out the flaws in some of the ESG data and trying to say, we don't understand why these scores are different. I mean, my view tends to be, if you've got different providers to try and work out the overall score of the attractiveness of a company or a stock, you'd get wildly different answers because you're trying to incorporate the profits, the free cash flow, the balance sheet, the growth, the dividends, all those sort of things. And of course, there's a host of data on companies, you're going to end up drawing different conclusions and that's what makes a market, ideally. So I don't see why you'd expect it to be different, that we suddenly would have these perfect answers for ESG factors. Then what you think about that, Claire? I agree, Dan, although it is one of the reasons why I tend to prefer an actively managed approach for many of these things. I think where the differences in data views matters more is when you're trying to approach it passively. And I am concerned that sometimes solutions are looking to place too much reliance on data that is still at an experimental stage. Of course, it's worth remembering that even when you're investing passively, you don't have to rely solely on the specification of your index to define your approach to climate risk management because you also have the tool of stewardship. We're not going to mitigate climate risks fully or achieve net zero targets just by avoiding the bad companies. As I was alluding to earlier, it is also about getting companies to transition to manage their climate risks effectively. And investors have a really important role to play in that, both through their engagement with companies and through use of their voting rights. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because we talked earlier about the 2050 net zero commitments from countries being grabbed a lot of headlines, which is great. But increasingly, we're starting to see large investors making similar commitments about their portfolios, which I find really interesting. And I know we've worked with some very large investors to start thinking about how that would work in terms of working that through the portfolios, equities, but not just equities, real assets and bonds and those sort of things. So what general observations might you make on those sort of frameworks from what we've seen, Claire? I think it is really interesting that we're starting to see investors making those commitments. It's particularly interesting in a sort of pensions context because it raises questions about the objectives of pension schemes and the extent to which they are naturally aligned with net zero targets. Because, of course, we've long had debates about the need for trustees to respect their fiduciary duty to act in members' best financial interests. So there is actually a step there to say, well, is a net zero by 2050 target in members' best financial interest? You could clearly make the social case that it's beneficial for us to achieve the climate targets, but not necessarily at the level of an individual pension scheme. And what we have seen is some of the early schemes that have been making those commitments have been perhaps squaring that circle through reference to member views and the fact that there is widespread public support for hitting climate targets. Have you typically found that those pension schemes that are making those sorts of commitments, that's generally where the corporate, the company supporting the scheme is also making a strong commitment? Or do you see these schemes acting more standalone than that? I've seen a bit of both. Probably seen a number of commitments coming from local government schemes. And so perhaps there, the the sort of public sector nature and the amount of discussion within local authorities about meeting climate targets is perhaps helping to shift that conversation along. But we also see organisations like, say, Nest, which of course doesn't have a sponsoring employer in setting net zero targets. And I guess in the same way that the US makes a big commitment and other countries follow suit, some large institutional investors making big commitments can only push things in one direction, really. I think it will start some really important discussions as well about how practically do you implement net zero targets. And even for schemes that aren't making those kind of commitments themselves, I think it's really helpful if it moves the industry on in terms of better climate risk management practices. So, Claire, as we start to wrap up this session, what would you say is the one thing that you want listeners to take away from what we've spoken about? I'd actually refer back to one of the first things we talked about, actually, which is that we need 
avoid getting too excited about all these long-term targets that are set and make sure that we focus more on the short-term actions that follow through on those commitments and not to assume that just because we're hearing so much talk about net zero that those targets will automatically be met because there is an awful lot to be done to achieve those targets. Yeah, that's a great point. That's come through really strongly from what you've said. Claire, what's one thing you think is really underappreciated about this area at the moment? I was thinking back to our previous conversation. Should I say the same thing as before or something completely different? I'd actually sort of like to throw in a, a bit of a curveball, if I may, which is to say that we do have a tendency to talk about climate risk in isolation. I think it's important to remember that climate risk is interconnected with many other risks out there. I'm hearing a lot of discussion about not only the climate crisis, but also the nature crisis. And I don't think investors are yet thinking hard enough about the fact that we are facing a devastating loss of biodiversity and the way that the natural world underpins our economy, our financial system. I think investors need to start thinking harder about that and thinking about how that affects their investment decisions. And there has been some really interesting innovation in those sorts of areas, I think, but perhaps not with enough of a spotlight on them. I watched a couple of interesting TED Talks about how to support and maintain and bring back biodiversity, but it needs attention, really. We're starting to see more attention in policy circles generally, but I'm not seeing a huge amount of attention within the investment community yet. I think there's still uncertainty about how to relate such a sort of big macro thing to the specifics of investment, but we need to get smarter at that. Cool. What a great point to sort of end on. I mean, Claire, you gave us some really nice recommendations last time we spoke, actually, which I've got into and really enjoyed. Any more recommendations for us, podcasts, books, anything? I was going to highlight the fact that the wreath lectures are taking place at the moment. And this year, it's Mark Carney. First lecture last week, he was talking about the difference between value and values. So we talk a lot about value in investment circles. They're thinking about how the potential sort of conflicts between that and the values that are important to people. It's part of a series on the credit, COVID and climate crises. So I'm sure that he's going to be talking more about climate risks in the remaining three lectures. Great. Well, we'll find the link to that and put it in the notes. I do quite like Mark Carney's speeches. He's quite thoughtful and quite articulate, I find. It's enjoyable to listen to. Absolutely. Well, Claire, it's been an absolutely great conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed it. Likewise. Thank you for inviting me back. Thanks very much, Claire. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut and in fact for this year. So we're releasing this on the 23rd of December. Happy Christmas, everyone. I hope you all have a good break. We're going to take a break too. So we'll not release an episode on the 30th. We'll be back on the 6th. But I also wanted to give you a heads up that the episode on the 13th of January will be the return of Book Club. So if you want some festive reading, then please join in with us. We're going to be reading Matthew Syed's Rebel Ideas and discussing it on the 13th of January. So happy Christmas, happy new year and speak to you soon. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.